Especially when we're going through this series, we're going to turn to a lot of verses tonight. Uh, so I've got them written down up on the screen, or I, they, they will be as they show up. That way, uh, hopefully it'll save a little bit of time as we go through there. But I'd like you to turn to as many of them as you can. Uh, we, like I said, we've got quite a few of them, and, and uh, a lot of the passages that we're going to look at tonight um, have more than one verse with them. So um, hopefully it'll help you as we get into it and, and give you a little bit more time to get there. I know we turn to them fairly quickly, but um, um, that'll be a help to us as we study this third of the Baptist distinctives, and we'll get to that in just a second. So we've already covered two. What's the first of the Baptist distinctives, Emma? Biblical authority, and what's the second? Alex? Autonomy. Very good. So biblical authority. The Bible is, is our final authority for faith and practice. Nothing else. Uh, we don't add anything to it. Obviously, we don't take anything away from it. And then, of course, autonomy. Uh, we're independent, and we, we, we're independent as we rely on that biblical authority. So uh, we can be independent all we want to, but if the Bible is not our authority, then it doesn't count for anything. We're no different than a country club that doesn't have a, uh, you know, a group that it's a part of or something like that. So biblical authority is, is uh, primary. And then the autonomy that comes. And then the third one, we, uh, we use the term, the priesthood of the believer. And when we use that term, it, it sounds strange, I think, but it's an accurate term. It's also a biblical term. Each one of us are priests. Um, in the Old Testament, priests offered the sacrifices. They performed all the ceremonial acts of worship, which we're going to get into that a little bit. But, you know, they were keepers of the, of the tabernacle. Later, they were keepers of the temple. Uh, they would burn the incense, they'd sprinkle the blood uh, on, on the sacrifices on the altar. But now, because of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, and the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission, but Jesus Christ died on the cross as that spotless lamb, he shed his blood, so now we don't need that sacrificial system anymore. Um, we can go directly to God as a result of our right standing before him. All of that was provided through Jesus Christ. So, We've been discussing for these past few weeks beliefs that are important to us as Baptists. And as I've mentioned before, we're not the only Christians that hold these distinctives, but we are the only Christians that hold to all eight of these Baptist distinctives that we're going to look at. And so tonight I want to give you the third in that acrostic, B, Baptist, uh, biblical authority, A, autonomy, P, priesthood of the believer. So we're going to look at what that means and then what it grants to us as, uh, as believers. So let's get right into it and talk, first of all, about the meaning of the priesthood of the believer. Now, I think to understand that, we need to go back a little bit and look at some history. So turn back to 1 Samuel 28. In, in much the same, uh, or, or in much of human history, religions have been structured in such a way that one person was the, the access point to God, if you will. He was that conduit. Every other person had to come to him in order to be able to get to God. And honestly, that's the way a lot of the cults are set up nowadays. Uh, you can't get to God unless you come through me, right? If I was a cult leader, I would say, you can't get to God unless you come to me and I'll get to God for you. So you have to give me this amount of money or you have to do this certain thing or that certain thing in order for me to feel compelled to go to God on your behalf. Um, you can look at the Celtic Druids. They did it that way. You can look at a, a, a shaman. American shamans are that way. That's that, you know, it's different gods and different things that they're talking about. But, um, you know, African witch doctors, they're all, they're all giving access to God, but you have to come through them in order to get that. And you can see that actually represented in the Old Testament on the pagan side with the witch of Endor. 1 Samuel 28, 
Remember, um, Samuel died, and Saul didn't know what to do, and so he said that he was going to try to get in touch with Samuel, and so he went to a witch. And we see in verse number 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then, Saul, then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there's a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. Now, I think that story is pretty interesting, and I'm not going to take the time to go through it or, or especially read through it, but when Samuel actually came and met with Saul, which happened, the witch was surprised. It, it almost makes you think that, that she was just putting on this show, and when somebody actually showed up that she was trying to bring back from the dead, it, it was real, and I think it scared her. But again, you know, that's, that's the way that a lot of these things happen. It's demonic, you know, um, witchcraft and all of these other things. It's, it's dealing in the demonic side of things, and so uh, trying to get to the afterlife and to the next world and everything else. But in a similar vein, turn over to Leviticus chapter 5, uh, similar vein, but in a godly way, the Old Testament set up a system that if you wanted access to God, you had to go through the priest. And, and again, God set that system up, so we know that it was not an ungodly thing. It was a very godly thing. God's the one that set it up. It was not trying to get access to some God or whoever else. It was access to the one true God that we uh, know and love in the Bible. But Leviticus chapter 5, and verse number 5 says, And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these things, that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. Well, who is he confessing to? God? He's confessing to the priest, Right? And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin, which he hath sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. So he would have to come to the priest, tell the priest, hey, this is the sin that I'm confessing. He would, he would offer that lamb or that sacrifice, whatever it happened to be, and the priest was the one that had to take it in and make that sacrifice for him. Saul improperly offered a sacrifice before Samuel got there in 1 Samuel 13. Remember, Samuel was supposed to come and supposed to come and supposed to come, and he didn't, and he was late, and, or at least Saul felt that he was. And so finally he said, we need to make this sacrifice. And Saul went around God's order. He went around the priest, and he made the sacrifice himself. And as soon as that sacrifice was done, Samuel said, thou hast done foolishly. Right? Behold, what did God say? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. So Saul was the king. He was the top. He could have done that if he wanted to, but no, he couldn't, because that's not the way that God set it up. They were supposed to go through the priest to make those sacrifices. Jesus, Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, using the Old Testament system, after he cleansed the leper. It's a great illustration. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus obviously... Uh, did away with a lot of things. You, you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was all the Sermon on the Mount, and that was where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, I'm telling you. You've heard that it was said, but now I'm saying. You've heard that it was said before, but now I'm telling you this is the way that it's going to be. And Jesus was in that sermon going from that Old Testament system into the New Testament system, right? And it wasn't complete until Jesus actually died on the cross, but Jesus still fit under that Old Testament system. Look what he said in verse number uh, 4 of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So even Jesus, he cleansed the leper. They had never seen that happen before. Jesus came along. I mean, every once in a while you had some miracles. You, you saw things that were done by Elijah and Elisha and some of these others. But 
Jesus comes along and he's doing miracles all over the place and everybody's gathering in great throngs to see Jesus do these miracles. Jesus heals a leper and he tells them, hey, the, the system and the way that it's set up is you need to go show yourself to the priest, right? You need to make that offering. You need to make the, the offering that Moses commanded you to make. So this concept of going through the priest to God was not only true in the matter of fixing what was wrong between you and God, but if you simply wanted to open up a line of communication with God. You had to go through the priest. He had to make the sacrifice. He had to do all those different things. And, and especially, you see David, when he was on the run from Saul, he went to a shrine where Ahimelech the priest inquired of the Lord for David, right? So that was the way that system was set up. All that changed through Jesus in the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew 27. In the Old Testament, if you wanted communication with God, either confession or request, you went through a priest. God lived in a particular location, right? He lived in the tabernacle. He lived in the temple. That was it. That was the only place you saw God, right? When you wanted to communicate with God, you went there. And through the work of a priest, you said what you wanted to say to God. And if he had something to say back to you, he would say it through his priest, right? A lot of times when it was to the entire nation, he said it through his high priest. Aaron first and then, uh, then the others after that. But when the coming of the New Testament, with the coming of the New Testament, that changed. When the veil that hung between the, holiest, the holy place and the holy of holies was rent in two. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross. That was, there were several things that happened when Jesus died. One of them was there was complete darkness over, the, all the fa over all the face of the earth in the middle of the day. Complete darkness. Uh, those uh, that were dead in Christ got up out of the tombs and walked around. But the veil in the temple was rent. And by the way, it was rent from top to bottom which means that it was no accident that somebody, by the way, this, thing, this veil was very, very thick. It's not, uh, it, it, would, it would be almost impossible for a human to be able to rip it or several humans to be able to rip it. But you could say that that was the case if it was ripped from bottom to top because, oh, you could have had a little tear and two people grabbed it and they just started yanking or whatever else. But the veil was rent, ripped from top to bottom. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now, Hebrews explains that this veil represented Jesus' flesh. In fact, turn over to Hebrews. I think this is very interesting. This is uh, Jesus' death on the cross was a very miraculous thing. It's not just the Romans decided that they were going to crucify this guy that was causing them problems. That's the way that they were looking at it. Uh, obviously the Jews believed that Jesus was claiming to be God and he was actually not God, and so that's why they crucified him. But there was a whole lot of miraculous things that happened around the death of Jesus Christ. The earthquake, the darkness, the, the graves opening up, and this veil in the temple being rent. But it was more than just some crazy thing that happened. It was very symbolic. Nobody was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And now, after the death of Jesus Christ, that Holy of Holies was not a Holy of Holies anymore. It wasn't only for the high priest. It, was, it wasn't only once a year that you were allowed to go in there. And when that flesh was torn in half, a way was opened up for us to go directly to God without needing the intermediary of a priest. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, and, 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 and maybe this will make, it, make a little bit more sense to you. You know, uh, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, it says, right? Why, why do we have to come boldly? It's not, is that a scary thing to go before God? Well, it was. To enter the holy of holies? You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't do it. 
Because it was, it, you would be dead, right? Even the high priest, when he went in once a year, he, had a, he, had, he wore those long priestly robes and he had, he had uh, pomegranates around the bottom and bells tied to him so that, and a rope tied to his, to his feet so that if, if those bells stopped moving, they knew that he entered that Holy of Holies with sin in his heart or without doing the things that he needed to do. He wasn't cleansed the way that he was supposed to, and they drug him out by his feet. You had, had, you had to be pretty bold to go into the Holy of Holies, right? And now he's saying, hey, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying is Jesus' body was that veil, and it was torn. And when that veil was torn, Jesus became the door for us to get into the Holy of Holies. So we as Baptists believe that the Bible teaches that each one of us is, in actuality, a priest, and that we have that direct, direct access to God. And that's not just a made-up term. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5. I should have read that first, and I, I skipped it on accident, but we're coming back to it. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse number five says this, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we are priests. We're priests before God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Look at verse number nine. But ye are a chosen generation. He's talking to Christians there, a royal priesthood and holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're, you've been saved. You're called out of that darkness like we talked about on Sunday. You're called into his marvelous light, and you are a priest before God. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1. Again, it's, it's very, very plain that we as believers are priests unto God, and we don't need that priesthood anymore. It was done away with when Jesus Christ died on the cross. We see it in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 6. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Turn a couple of pages over in Revelation 5, verse number 10. He really says the exact same thing. And hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Priesthood of the believer means that everybody who believes in Jesus Christ became priests with direct, direct access to God. We come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our sins have been forgiven. We have, we've been saved by grace through faith. And once that takes place, once that change takes place in our hearts, now we become priests before God with direct, ac direct access to God. So let's take a, take a minute and look at some comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament priests. I think this is very interesting. Uh, turn over to Leviticus. Chapter 21, the Old Testament priests had to be without blemish. Um, Leviticus chapter 21, verse number 17. Speak unto Aaron, Aaron was the high priest, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generation that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. I think that's pretty interesting. You could have nothing wrong with you. And, and he is very specific, verse 18. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed, 
or crookbacked, or a dwarf, or that hath any blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest, shall come nigh to, the offer, to offer the offering of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish, he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, he, he made it very plain. You have a flat nose? Sorry, you're, you're, not, you're not eligible, right? You got a crooked back? Sorry, you're not eligible either. You got a broken hand, broken foot? Sorry, you're getting passed up for the, for, the, for the line of the priesthood because you had to be without blemish. And we see the same thing in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5. New Testament priests must be without blemish too. If we're going to come before God, the New Testament priest has to be without blemish as well. And when I say New Testament priests, I'm talking about us, those who are Christians, those who are saved. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've got a flat nose, you can't come before God. That means if you've got a crooked back, you can't come before God. But it's talking about that in a spiritual sense. If you're going to approach God, you better approach God without those things. That's what God wants of his church. He wants a church that's holy before him. He wants a church that's without blemish before him. And that's the goal. That ought to be the goal of every single Christian in, in our church, but every single Christian that is a Christian. You ought to, you ought to want to be without blemish. That's, that's what is acceptable to him. Turn over to Ezra chapter 2, because in the Old Testament, we see that the priest required proof of genealogy. An Old Testament priest had to prove that he was in that line. Ezra chapter 2. In verse 62, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. So if you couldn't prove that you were in the line of the priest, you didn't belong as a priest. You had to be, part, you had to be a Levite in order to be a priest. And if you couldn't prove that that was your genealogy, sorry, they were, they were cleaning house and they put all of them out. If you couldn't prove that you were in that line, you were no longer a priest. And we see the same thing there in John chapter 1. New Testament priesthood requires proof of genealogy too. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be passed from one Christian to the next to the next. That's not the way Christianity works. But you do have to be in the line of Jesus Christ, right? And it says this in John chapter 1 and verse number 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. How do you get in that genealogy? How do you get in that line? You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, right? But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We become, we, we're adopted, we're adopted into that line, but we're one of the sons of God if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Well, think about this. Back in Exodus chapter 28, the Old Testament priests were required to wear special garments. We see this in Exodus chapter 28 and verse number 40. And for Aaron's sons... Thou shalt make coats. Now, obviously, you had to be one of Aaron's sons or a descendant of Aaron to be able to be in that priestly line. And so these are the clothes that they're making for the priests. Make them coats. Thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets shalt thou make for them for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him and shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. That was required of the Old Testament priests and that's also required of the New Testament priests as well. Turn to Revelation 19. 
I think this is a, a great passage. Uh, the, the clothes that the righteous wear. This is great. Revelation 19 and verse number 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. What a, what a tremendous thing that is. I, I, I'm so looking forward to the, the time of the revelation. Obviously, it's not here yet, most of it, um, and we're looking forward to, to what's going to be. But man, when we, as the, as the bride of Christ, we come back to this earth and we're going to be riding the white horses and, and riding in the clouds with Jesus to come and, and, and take, take it back, essentially. But the fine linen that we're going to be arrayed in, clean and white, is the righteousness of saints. Go back to Exodus 29. I probably should have had you keep your finger there in Exodus because we're kind of going back and forth, but not always the same passage. But Exodus 29, uh, one more comparison here. The Old Testament required purifying by the blood of sacrifices. And again, um, the, uh, the Bible says that, that uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Blood had to be shed. And sometimes you look in the Old Testament, especially with Solomon and some of these others that, that were very wealthy. I mean, they sacrificed thousands and thousands of animals at a time and uh, in, in some of their big ceremonies that they did. But Exodus chapter 29 and verse 21, we see this as the job specifically of the priest. Thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him, and he shall be hallowed and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So that was something. They, they had to be purified by the blood of the sacrifices. That was one of the things that they had to do if they wanted to be a priest in the Old Testament. And we see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 because the New Testament priest requires purifying by blood as well. It's not the blood of animals. It's not the blood of goats or bulls or doves or any of those other things. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19 makes that very clear. It says this, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was that lamb that was out ble without blemish and without spot. And that is so important. It's what a, I mean, you see picture after picture after picture. The Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament system was a picture of Christ and his coming. But that lamb had to be spotless. It, had to be, it couldn't have a blemish on it. It couldn't have a spot. It couldn't be... You know, it couldn't, it couldn't have a broken leg. It couldn't have some disfigurement on it or something. It had to be a perfect lamb, a, an unblemished lamb. And the same thing is true with Jesus Christ. That's why I could never be your Savior. That's why no, none of us could be a Savior. We're, we're blemished, right? Sin has tarnished us. Whether we've ever sinned on this earth or not, which everybody has, the Bible makes that very clear, but whether we've sinned on this earth or not, we come from the line of Adam. And Adam sinned, and so wherefore, as by one man, the Bible says in Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, for death, for, for death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, right? We all fit into that category. I could never be your Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who could be, because he was as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Baptists have insisted that every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has direct access to God. Each one of us is directly responsible to God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16, I already referenced this verse, but it says this, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. That was something that only the Old Testament priests were able to do before Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. Before Jesus came and shed his blood, now we all have that access. The Old Testament people couldn't possibly do that without death coming to them. They would have died had they come boldly before the throne of grace. Had they come boldly into the Holy of Holies, they would have been dead before they, before they took the second step into that place. But now the Bible says we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can have that mercy. We can find grace to help in time of need. So what priesthood of the believer grants to, grants to the believers? Well, I think it's some very interesting things. Number one, no one person has any special claim on, spiritually, uh, on spirituality or access to God. Turn over to Exodus chapter 29. Got a few verses here. I'll read through them fairly quickly. If you want to try to, to jump in on a couple of them, you can. But just for the sake of time, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to drag it on when I'm just reading verses. And, and, but I do want you to turn to as many as you can. But, but I think this is so important. What does is what is, what is the priesthood of the believer mean for the believer? Well, number one, no one person has any special claim on spirituality or on access to God. Aaron and his descendants had been appointed as the high priest for Israel. Only they were permitted to, to do those priestly duties. Aaron was a type of Christ, though. He was anointed the high priest by Moses under God's instruction. Exodus chapter 29 and verse number 7. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. God gave Moses those instructions for, for anointing Aaron as the high priest. But Jesus is our high priest, and we see that in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and Acts chapter 2. You can turn to either one of those or both. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It was God that made Jesus Christ Lord and Christ. And so doing, he made him to be the high priest. We see that in Isaiah chapter 61, verse number 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That was, that was a prophetic verse in Isaiah 61 there, talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And that was, that was his job, the anointing, including not only his ministry as priest, but as prophet and king. And no certain Christian has any more access to God than you or I have. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. I do want you to see this verse. Acts chapter 13. Aaron ceased to be a priest when he died. Aaron died, and, and the priesthood, he was no longer a priest. That was, that was the end of it for him. Christ became a priest only after he died. Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Each one of us have become priests after our death to the old self, to the old nature, uh, and, and, and being resurrected to new life in Jesus Christ. And now we can come individually unto God for that forgiveness of sins. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, again, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and, and find grace to help in time of need. So what are we offered as the uh, priests? 
what, what does priesthood of the believer offer us as Christians? Well, no person has any special claim on spirituality or access to God. But number two, there's no need for a mediating priest to stand between the believer and God. I don't need to go through a priest anymore because Jesus Christ did away with that. Western history is, is, is largely European history. And uh, for a thousand years, it's, it, and I don't think not, it's, it's not coincidence that it was called the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, from about 500 A.D. to about 1500 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church ruled Europe with an iron fist. And by the way, one of the reasons why Christianity could never truly be a state religion is because you cannot make somebody a Christian. Christianity happens in the heart, and that's it. So when the Catholic Church was making everybody to become Catholics and telling them they had to be Catholic or be killed, and then the Reformation happened and they were forcing everybody to be Lutherans or be killed or to be, you know, um, any of these other religions that, that rose up and became state religions, Christianity, true Christianity, cannot be made to be a state religion. Because how do you force somebody to accept Jesus Christ in their heart, right? All these other religions have things that, that, are, that have all the trappings on the outside, you can force somebody to go to a priest. You can force somebody to, to take communion. You can force somebody to do penance. You can force them to do all of those other things if they want to have, you know, the good graces of the king or whatever else. You can't force somebody to accept something in their heart because you can't see their heart, right? You, can't, you, can, you can say, I'm going to kill you if you don't believe that the earth is flat. Let's just use that for an example. I'm going to kill you if you don't believe the earth is flat. Well, what am I going to say? Earth is flat. I believe you. But in my heart, I'm saying, whatever, the earth ain't flat. The earth is round like everything else, right? I mean, you can't make me believe something. I'll, I'll say that I believe it. And that's why, that's why when, when Constantine, and uh, eventually Constantine became the father, if you will, of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, supposedly saw this vision and made Christianity the official religion of the entire world at that time, of course everybody said, yep, I'm a Christian too right? And that was the worst thing that could have happened for the church because everybody became Christians, but they weren't really Christians. They, weren't, they didn't believe it in their heart. They were just doing it on the outside because they didn't want to die, right? But, uh, you know, amongst differing scientific and educational and philosophical and economic controls, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church also controlled access of the individual person to God. You had to go through the Catholic Church, you had to go through a priest of the Catholic Church to be able to get to God, or you did not have access to God. And the practice of, of calling the clergy a priest, which, you know, again, the practice of confession to a priest, the practice of saying masses for money so that the priest could get your, your loved ones out of purgatory, even, uh, even, even excommunication for people who didn't go along with that, right? You could give me all the money in the world. I can't go to God on your behalf. You, you know, you're a priest just as much as I'm a priest, right? So don't call me priest. Well, I'm going to turn around and call you priest too because if, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what you are. So, of course, those beliefs aren't isolated to the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. They're still held. They're still practiced by, by hundreds of millions of Catholics and, and a whole lot of other people around the world today. But as Baptists, that's the difference is that we thoroughly reject that model. We don't need to go through a priest. We are, those, we are the priest. I don't need to go to somebody else to get access to God. I have that direct access myself. And we saw that in a lot of those other verses. And so 
uh, a, a lot of those, a lot of these things really hamstrings theologically, hamstrings a person, makes them spiritually, completely spiritually dependent on somebody else who is also imperfect. Is the same reason that, that, that if you came to, to, to make a confession to me, I don't have any ability to forgive your sins, right? I'm, I'm imperfect like you are. There's only one person who has the ability to forgive sins, and that's Jesus Christ because he's the only one that's perfect, right? So coming to me or coming to a priest or coming to anybody else as our way to access God is not found in the Bible, that's been made up by religions and all kinds of people who are looking for ways mostly to make money because if you don't come to them and they can't tell you how much money to pay and all these other things, then they're not making that money off of that. So you and I have access to God and direct access to God. We don't need to go through a priest or anybody else to get it. We are priests. God has accepted that act of sacrifice of Christ as a once and for all offering. I don't need anything else. God has made the way to himself as easy and as clear as it is possible to make. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I, think, I, don't, I don't think that you can be any clearer than this passage. We said that no one person has any special claim on spirituality or access to God. There is no need for a mediating priest to stand between the believer and God. But number three then... What naturally comes out of that is that salvation and, and as a result of that, access is freely guaranteed in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 makes that very, very clear. It says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's one God and one mediator between God and man, your pastor. Right? It doesn't say there's one mediator between God and men. The, the priest, right? It, it says one, one God, one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. I don't have to go to a priest to get to God. I go to Jesus Christ to get to God, and I have that access. Jesus, is, uh, he sa Jesus said to the woman at the well to worship God in spirit and in truth, right? If I'm worshiping God in spirit, I'm not going anywhere to do it, right? Now, I think church is a great place, and there's, there's verses in the Bible that command us to be part of the church and to go to church and all those other things, but I can worship God anywhere. I can be at home. I can be driving down the road. I can be anywhere and worship God. I don't have to be in a church to do it. Worship in spirit and in truth. That means that I have access to God from wherever I'm at. Um, amongst all the instructions to pray in the New Testament, there's not a single one about going to a particular place to do that prayer. I can pray anywhere, which then brings us to number five, six, and seven, Number five, prayer can be done anytime, right? Even Jesus prayed at midnight. We saw that happen many, many times. Number six, prayer gets to God instantly. He has an infinite capacity to pay attention and infinite knowledge of who's praying what. I'm so glad I'm not God. I, I, I couldn't keep, I can't even keep track of, of what's going on in my own life, let alone what's going on in every other person's, the billion other people in this world's life, right? And all the different prayers that are going up to him and taking care of all. I mean, think about the 24-hour time zones and all those other things. I mean, it's chaos. I mean, you, you, you come in here when there's just a handful of people praying, and you, it just sounds like noise, right? But to God, he's listening. We have access to him. And we, can act, we have access to him anytime, anywhere. Number six, uh, six, prayer gets to God instantly. And number seven, prayer can be about anything. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, you could probably quote it. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. 
If it's, a, if it's a burden to you, he wants to hear it. Casting all your care upon him, all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He doesn't say just the big things. He doesn't say just the small things, all of it. He's willing to take all of it because prayer can be about anything. How could God make it any easier to pray? Yet how little have you and I prayed this week? How many times have you used that access that you have to God, right? If, if the President of the United States, depending on who he is, came to you and said, hey, here's my cell phone, call me anytime. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's small, if it's big, if you need anything, you call me. You, 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 you want me to come open uh, the coffee shop for you because they closed and you're, you're standing outside, you call me, right? How many times would you say, well, hey, I'll, he said to call him, so hey, trying to get a drink and they won't, they won't give it to me, whatever, you know? I mean, if, if you had that access, how often would you use it? They say, oh, I don't really, I, I just, I don't want to keep bugging you about it. No, hey, man, it's fine, whatever you want to do. You, you have any problems, you, you come to me about it. I'm just right next door, right? Come over here and tell me about it, we'll get it taken care of. If you had that access, you'd use it, wouldn't you? And yet we have that access to God through Jesus Christ. We can go to him anytime, anywhere, any place, about anything. And yet, well, I'm just, I don't, God, I don't want to keep asking you for that thing because I've asked you a thousand times already. Hey, keep asking him. That's the, that's the access that we have to God through Jesus Christ. Praying, praying through the, the church prayer list at home during the week. I mean, we have so, much, so many things to pray for. Uh, but what good is, is you know, um, hooting and hollering about how, how great this doctrine of the, the priesthood of the believer and the ability to go to God whenever we want to. And we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And I can pray anytime, anywhere, anyplace. And then we don't do it. What's the point? What's the point of making a big deal about it if we don't use it, right? Which brings us then to the very last point. Turn back over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because that's the responsibility of the believer priests. What's the responsibility that we have because we have this priesthood of the believer? Well, number one, every believer is responsible for his or her own actions, right? Individual believers can go directly to God without the aid of any intermediary. We can and should read and interpret the Bible for ourselves without some religious official dictating to us what to believe. And that's why when we, when we go through this whole series, what I believe and why, that's why I call it that. I don't say what we believe and why, because I'm not telling you what you have to believe. I'm showing you from the Bible what you should believe, but you have the, access, you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe, as long as, it's, as long as it's in line with the Word of God, right? Um, but every believer is responsible for his or, her own, his or her own actions because we are priests before God. Second thing is this, every believer has the responsibility to be committed to Christ and to share Christ throughout, through word and deed. And he says that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, I think that peculiar doesn't mean weird, right? You don't have to be a weird people, but you're going to be different. You're going to stick out. You're going to look different to this lost world. You are a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're, we have the responsibility to be committed to Christ and to share Christ through word and deed. And the last one is this. Every believer is to keep himself in fellowship to all others in the church. He does that through a godly lifestyle, walking in the light of the word of God, compassionate spirit toward other believers. That's one of the things that we have 
as, as priests, right? We all have that authority, if you will. We all have that access to God. But then because we have that authority, because we have that responsibility, then we should be in fellowship with everybody else in the church, not just in fellowship with God. But if we're all in tune with the Holy Spirit and we're all in tune with God, then we should all be in tune with each other. We shouldn't have conflicts. We shouldn't have fighting and, and all those things. And I'm so thankful that in this church we really don't. And it's, it's a blessing to be able to have that. But let me conclude with this statement. We can go to God on our own behalf as priests, but shame on us if we don't do it. Right? Priesthood of the believers. Oh, I don't have to go through anybody else. I can go directly to God. Shame on us if we don't. Shame on us if we don't. We have that access. We have access to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We have access to the God who not only owns this earth, this tiny little speck of dust in a gigantic universe, he owns everything in the universe. And yet he cares about us. He cares about me, he cares about you, and we have that access. Priesthood of believer, what a wonderful, wonderful truth that we find in the word of God. I don't need to go through somebody else. I have access to God by myself through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. What a, what, a, what, a, what a great doctrine, what a great concept that we find in the word of God. Number one, Baptist distinctive. Biblical authority. Number two, autonomy. And number three, priesthood of the believer. Very good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. So thank you for... Uh, another opportunity we have to go through your word and look at so many different verses that talk about this great access that we have to Jesus Christ. I pray that you help us to use it. I pray that you help us to come before your throne about everything and often, anytime, any place. And God, that we use that access that we have to help us stay in a relationship with you, to have the relationship with you that you want to have with us. And God, we thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to, to uh, come boldly before the throne of grace. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.